begin to experience that uh, as you look at God's word and as we repent of our sin and as we are uh, transformed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at a difficult topic, uh, one that every church member is going to have to confront sooner or later, and that is the issue of conflict and factions. Uh, in fact, Paul addresses this three times in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians, so I've called it, since it's, we're, we're talking about a fight, uh, round one, round two, and round three, okay, and you'll see that show up on your on your outline, because here's the reality. Uh, if you are in church long enough, this church, another church, any church, you're going to find out that uh, it is populated by converted sinners. Amen? And because of that, if you put converted sinners in any kind of relationship with one another long enough, you're going to have conflict. You're going to have fights. Uh, I have said this before, and you all have laughed at me and with me, uh, that my dear bride and I had our first fight in the parking lot leaving the reception at our wedding, okay? Uh, that is not one of my prouder moments, but nevertheless, that is reality, right? That's a reality that we all experience and deal with, that as we get into relationship with one another, one of the, one of the difficulties of being a converted sinner is that you still can be in conflict with your brothers and sisters. Amen? And it doesn't have to even be a really super serious, giant issue of great biblical import, right? For there to be fights among brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Uh, I am told that uh, there are certain people who get very serious about this particular question, as just one example. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? How many of you think they did? Raise your hand. Okay, you're an umbilicist or a navalist, all right? How many people think they didn't? Okay, how many people say, I don't know? Yeah, okay. Now, here's the thing. Some people get really serious about this, okay? In fact, um, you know, some people say, well, look, if you put, if you, if you think that they had belly buttons, to imagine they had belly buttons is to deny the fact that they were created by God directly without a mother. Therefore, they don't. They never had an umbilical cord. Therefore, they never had that scar that forms that we call a belly button, right? In fact, the painter, Michelangelo, when he painted the Sistine Chapel, he painted the creation of Adam. You know, Adam is being created by God and, you know, God is coming in, and Adam is there, and he's, you know, kind of reaching out, and God is touching him, and so forth. And Adam has a belly button right there on the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And he got in all kinds of hot water over that. Right? A lot of painters just avoided the whole issue because they thought, you know what, we'll just put some strategic foliage in there, and we'll just avoid the whole thing. <laughs> right? And other people go, well, you know, they were the prototype human beings. They had to have belly buttons. And, uh, and, and because they would have looked really weird, you know, if they didn't have them, which is true. But I'm pretty sure the whole creational nudity thing ended after the fall, so I'm not sure who was looking. But nevertheless, right, 
Lots of people get really agitated over this issue. In fact, I am told, I found out this week, that there are actually small groups of Christians who have divided churches over this issue of whether or not Adam and Eve had belly buttons. And in fact, among those who believe that they had them, there are even divisions uh, as to when they caught them and why, and they are divided into groups of pre, mid, and post umbilicus. <laughs> okay? And basically what I want to say on this is that, is that this is all a bit silly and ultimately comes down to an unwillingness to say three very important words. I don't know. I don't know. And it's prideful. Amen? And it's foolish. You know, one of the verses we've had our kids uh, memorize at our house is the one where Paul says, have nothing to do with foolish and stupid arguments that only cause quarrels. Right? Tells Timothy that. It's It's a good word. And it applies here in this situation. Amen? Have nothing to do with foolish and stupid arguments. It's like, when's the next time I'm going to be on Jeopardy and need to know this? Right? I spent four years of seminary, 120-some hours of graduate-level class, and we never spent one solitary minute answering this question, okay? I'll assure you that this is not a matter of great importance, right? And yet, people have nevertheless divided themselves into various factions and groups and even divided churches over a foolish, stupid issue. And we ought to think that it's silly and foolish and counterproductive, right? But just because something is foolish and silly and counterproductive doesn't mean that it won't cause division in the body of Christ, right? How many of us have seen, and you don't have to raise your hand on this because I know what the answer is, lots of us, most of us probably, have seen churches divided over similarly foolish, counterproductive, and ultimately silly arguments and disagreements. Like how many churches, as an example, let me just highlight some other issues with which you may have more familiarity or maybe more passion. How many churches have divided over the color of the carpet? Or over what kind of furniture we're going to have? whether we're going to have pews or whether we're going to have chairs. Uh, How many people have divided over the dress code or over the length of the pastor's sermon? (laughs) Or over, I'm just telling you, long is better. Long is good, longer is better, and too long is just right, right? All right, now, um, right, Uh, how many people have been divided over the type of Bible translation that is used? I'm not talking about cultic, like New World Translation that Jehovah's Witnesses use, or something like that. I'm talking about, well, I've got to have this kind of translation, and it's got to have 
an appropriate number of these and, and thou's. And if it doesn't have the requisite number, well, then it's cultic or it's, it's no good or whatever, right? There are people who, who believe that. Um, there are all kinds of petty points of disagreement we can get into, right? And the reality of it is, is that, you know, a lot of these things come down to issues of personal preference more than issues of anything that's definitively biblical, right? Some people like older and more traditional ways of going. Some people like newer and more modern ways of going. For some people, uncomfortable is a feature, thus they like pews, right? Um, uh, it, but it's tradition, right? And so they like that. Uncomfortable is holy, apparently, for some folks, right? Um, for some people, you know, being in step more in step with the times, at least culturally, even if not shaping the way that we present the message, is more of a value. And it's not a biblical issue, it's a preference issue, right? I like the King James Bible as an example. I like all those these and thous and the poetic sections, particularly of the King James Bible, are near and dear to my heart. In fact, you can't understand American history and American culture without understanding the impact of the King James Bible, right? Some of the great movements socially, the civil rights movement, the abolition movement, uh, the Civil War, invoked the King James Bible. Now, Abraham Lincoln quoted it, repeated it in his speeches. You know, you have Martin Luther King Jr. standing on the, uh, at the mall saying, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, right? Right out of King James. And that's good. I like the ESV. I think it's good. Based on the same text. Um, a lot of these things are issues of personal preference, but nevertheless, there are things that can divide churches. And there are also sometimes more substantive issues. Like maybe a, a doctrinal point that actually matters. Maybe there are issues of, of what kind of music we're going to use to worship. That's been a big issue in the last 40 years. And it's pretty easy when there's conflict for camps and factions to begin to form. And these things are not always, I'll be honest with you, if you're really honest and you look at conflict in relationships very often, it's not about the issue at hand, at least not entirely. It's often about power and control and who's going to be in charge and who's going to win as much as it is about the issue that underlies the discussion. And if we're not careful to follow the teachings of God's word about dealing with factions, then our church can fall victim to them too. Because people within this church, just as in every other church, just as in the church at Corinth, are converted sinners. 
And that means that while we are converted and while we are growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Savior, it also means that we still struggle with one another. Amen? So, uh, this is the first of three rounds, as I said, of Paul's dealing with this topic and here in 1 Corinthians. So, I want to look at it with you uh, and look, first of all, at the basis for unity in the body of Christ. And Paul gives us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. Okay, Let's look at it together. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, uh, last week in my introduction to this book, I said that the Corinthian church was one that was racked by conflict over issues big and small. Uh, it was a church that had uh, within it both pious Jews like Crispus, who, were the form, who was the former synagogue ruler, as well as former pagan Gentiles. It had rich and it had poor. It had slave and it had free. And it had an ample opportunity because of all these differences and distinctions between people for there to be a lot of division among religious and ethnic and cultural and class lines. And divide they did. But look here at what Paul does in addressing the problem. He, he, he doesn't focus first on what divides the church, he focuses first on what holds them in common. What, do the th- what are the things that they hold in common? What are the issues and the truths and the realities that ought to unify them? Let's focus on that before we address the issues of the things that drive you apart. And this verses 4 through 8 are just one gigantic sentence. Paul is a, an attorney, and he writes like it. Okay, it's just one long kind of run-on sentence, and Paul does that. You know, sometimes in Romans, if you read a you read a section, you, he'll go on for half a chapter before there's a period, and you'll go, "Wow, Paul, that's a lot in there." And and so because of that, what I want to do is just take a little section of of this, and let's look at what Paul says. These are the things we all ought to agree on. These are all the things that we ought to knit us together as the body of Christ and ought to hold us together because they are the things that give us common membership in the body of Christ. So he does it by thanking God for all the things uh, that tie them together as one church in this place. So he says, first of all, I thank God always, every, uh, always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. What he means is this. People come to faith in Jesus Christ by God's grace. And it's a gift that is given to us by grace. And so when he says, I thank God for the grace that was given to you by God in Christ Jesus, what he's saying is, I am thanking God that you are 
have put your faith in Jesus Christ, by grace you have received salvation from God through Christ. That as, that's the gospel, in other words. That the first thing that ought to unify us is our common faith in and conversion by the gospel. The good news is that we have been shown grace and mercy by God through Jesus. So when we believe the gospel, we are recipients of God's grace. And the church of God in Corinth that Paul is writing to is made up, he says, of those who have received God's grace in Jesus. Now look at verse, um, uh, verse 5 here. He says, oh, actually, let's look at 5 and 6. That in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the coming of the Lord, the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what he's saying. I think what he's saying there is this, that he knows that their faith is real because of the way that their faith is manifested in the spiritual gifts they possess. So he says, you're not only saved, you've been enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Uh, those, are the, it's, those are a reference, I think, to the spiritual gifts that they have. Uh, many of the gifts that the Corinthians had and that are given to the church as a whole are speaking gifts. They involve a speaking component. And so it's things like, as an example, the gift of prophecy involved declaring God's word and involves declaring God's word to people. Uh, being a pastor or a teacher involves declaring and speaking God's word to people. But there are also, there are also gifts that are mentioned in the scriptures that one of them is called the word of knowledge or the word of wisdom, which is, that, which is I think, what he's talking about here this idea of all speech, all the speaking gifts, you know, tongues is one that they have. All those speaking gifts that, that they possess are evidence that their conversion, in other words, is real because the Spirit has been at work and has manifested itself in them through their spiritual gifts. And Paul is thankful for that because it shows that they actually know God because the Spirit is obviously at work in them and through them. He's thankful for that. And he says, you have all the speaking gifts, you have all the knowledge gifts, and, and that's tremendous testimony to the fact that you actually are authentically Christians. So it's not simply just a head knowledge kind of a thing. It's, it's, it's alive in you. And I can see it, and that's good. And he says, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's significant. He's saying, you know, what are we, why is it, by the way, that God having saved us leaves us here? Think about that for a second. When we baptize people, why don't we hold them under until they quit bubbling? Right? I mean, they're saved, they're going to glory, right? Send them there quick, right? Uh, why don't we do that? I mean, other than the obvious, okay? 
Yeah. That, that would be the obvious, right? But the, the reason is, is that God intends for us to reach the world with the gospel, to serve one another with our spiritual gifts, and to worship Him with our life, right? And so Paul says that you have all these gifts and you're using them. I can see them being active in your life as you wait for the coming of Jesus, for the revealing of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That there's something we're to do in the here and now, and they're doing it. That's good. He's thankful. Word of encouragement, by the way. I see all kinds of spiritual gifts alive in our church. And it gives me great encouragement that you know the Lord and that you are pursuing Him. Some of you need to figure out either what your gift is or how you're going to use it. Because we're not simply saved to sit on a hillside somewhere and wait for Jesus to come back. Right? We are saved to serve, worship, and to pursue and obey. Paul says, you guys are doing that, and I'm thankful for it. Uh, And that's really what the church is. It's the fellowship of those who have been called to salvation through faith in the Son and to use their gifts. So here's the progression, okay? Real faith results in real fruitfulness, which results in real joy and reward when Jesus comes. And all of that is an outgrowth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. So Paul says, God is faithful by whom you've been called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That, in other words, you guys are doing this, and I know that God is going to keep his promises, that God is going to be faithful because the same one who called you into into membership in the fellowship of the redeemed is going to come back. He's going to send Jesus for you to claim you. And in the meantime, you're using your gifts as you should. So that real faith results in real fruitfulness, which results in real joy and real reward when Jesus comes. And we know that it's coming because God is faithful. Now, that is a, that's some great theology in just a few verses. It really is. But then he starts addressing, these are the things that ought to unify you. Well, now let's start to address some of the disunity. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And Paul begins his appeal by invoking their common faith. And 
And he says, look, all of you need to agree with one another, being of the same mind and having the same judgment. Uh, Chloe, I'm not sure exactly who she is. Uh, She may be one of the people who sent Paul a letter. We know that Paul got at least one letter uh, from the Corinthian church and that he is responding to some of the issues that were raised in that letter or letters uh, as he writes back in 1 Corinthians. Uh, It's also possible that Chloe was the name of the hostess of one of the groups uh, of the church. We know that the early church met uh, regularly as a large group and then regularly in smaller groups throughout the week. And she may have she may have been the host of one of these small groups in her in her house uh, and so they may have fired off a letter to Paul to say hey this is what's going on uh, we got some issues help us solve it and so he references Chloe's people telling him what's going on uh, don't know exactly who she is but we know that the report of factions and divisions got back to Paul through her. And there were things, one of the things that people were dividing over was who they claimed as their leader. One of the things that was part of Corinthian culture was that part of your social status was determined by who you were connected to. So if you were, if you had this guy as a patron, well maybe that put you at higher rank than if you had this guy as a patron. And you would claim and identify certain people as who you were connected to as a way of elevating yourself over others within the society. Well, that got brought into the church. And so people began to say, well, I am a follower of Paul. Well, Paul was the founding pastor, and so he had a lot of swat with some folks. Well, Apollos was the current pastor, and so some people said, well, I am a follower of Apollos. You know, Paul was good, but, you know, Apollos, he's much more eloquent of a speaker. And he's, besides that, he's the current guy, so I'm going to follow him. And other people said, well, you know, I, I know, uh, you know I'm going to go a little wider out into the circle. And I'm going to say, well, I follow Cephas, which is another name for Peter. I follow Peter. I mean, he's chief of the apostles, so he must be the sultan of Swat. And then other people, they were the spiritual folks. They were like, well, yeah, but I follow Right, And it was a way of just kind of trying to establish the pecking order as to who was most important within the body of Christ. And Paul says, this is none of this is a good idea. By the way, do people in the body of Christ still do that? Now, none of you would do that, I know. But there are people out in the wider church who do do that, right? They, they say, well, I follow Swindoll. Or I follow John MacArthur. Or I follow Tim Keller. There are darn few. I follow Joe Horns. Uh, and that's good. That's as it should be. All right? 
Here's the deal, though. People still do that. And it's a way of, I follow, or I follow Martin Luther, or I follow John Wesley, or I follow John Calvin. People still do that. And Paul says, hey, remember, y'all believe the same gospel about the same Jesus, about who gave you the same kinds of spiritual gifts, who brought you into the same fellowship of the same redeemed people. And there is one body of Christ because there is one Christ in whom you all believe. So how come you're all divided? Be of the same mind, have the same judgment with one another all this division is not good and it only confuses the issue which is membership in the fellowship of the redeemed based on the gospel Paul says look here he says was Paul crucified for you is Christ divided were you baptized in the name of Paul All these questions that he's asking have the anticipated answer based on the way they're written in Greek of no. No, Christ is not divided. Paul was not crucified for you. Obviously not. He's writing the letter. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Obviously not. And he says, well, now a few of you might say that I did baptize you. And he can't even remember. He gets a little fuzzy. It's been a couple years. And he's been busy since. You know, another group of people or, or three have tried to kill him in the interim, and so he's, he's got a little fuzzy on how many baptisms he did while he was there. But he says, look, I baptized a few of you, but none of you were baptized in my name. You were all baptized in Jesus' name. Because it's Jesus who laid down his life for you. It's Jesus who brought you into the church. It's Jesus who brought you into the body of Christ, and therefore it's Jesus that we all ought to follow and obey. And whoever, whatever messenger you line up with, he, just remember that. He's the messenger. And the message that he delivers and who he delivers it from is what is most important. Not the guy himself. And it's a misplaced It's a misplaced emphasis that focuses way too much on the messenger and not enough on the message that all of them are delivering in common. Besides which, all of these men, Apollos, Paul, Peter, would have all been horrified at the idea that churches are splitting along factional lines as to which one of them is the greatest servant of God. Because... Jesus prayed that the church would be unified. And that's who they're all following and announcing. In verse 17, he says, he he goes back to the gospel that provides unity. He says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. In other words, he says, my mission was to make the gospel known. And to make that Make that message of the gospel simple and clear so that as many as possible could believe. One of the things the Greeks were into was they were into really eloquent speeches and sophistication and 
and linguistic eloquence and great vocabulary. So that if people were confused, it was a great speech. And Paul says, I had some professors like that, I think, that we sat there and went, what did he say? They're like, oh, he's a brilliant man. I'm like, oh, maybe. He's got a big vocabulary for sure, but I don't even know if he's using the word right. <laughs> right? You just sit there just confused. Paul says, no, my job was not to make the gospel confusing, not to come with eloquent words, not to, not to, not to even necessarily to baptize, although baptism is a good thing. It's part of the discipleship process. Amen? And by the way, if you have not been baptized, we need to fix that. You need to be obedient to what Jesus said. But Paul says, let's prioritize what's really important. And what's really important is not baptism, but belief in the gospel, which is why I was sent, which to preach the gospel. That is, and to do it as clearly and simply as possible so that as many people as possible could believe and be welcomed into the body of Christ. And it's not important whether we heard the message of the gospel from Paul first or Peter first or Apollos first or even from Jesus first. The important thing is that we believe when we heard and that we were saved as a result of our faith as God's grace came to us. And all of that common belief should bind us together as the body of Christ. Uh, many of you know from experience that churches can and do go through deeply painful divisions. Uh, and sometimes they divide over issues that truly matter. Sometimes they divide over issues that, as you look back on it, are silly and aren't worth it. But nevertheless, the relationship is still shattered. In fact, Speaking very personally, our church has divided at times. And sometimes those issues were important, and sometimes they were profoundly foolish. But the outcome was to bring pain to everybody. And the same thing can happen in marriages, and in business, and in friendships, and in families. But Paul's emphasis here in this passage is that the gospel supplies the basis and the power for unity that can bring divisions to an end. The gospel provides not only the basis, but the power to bring divisions to an end. Let me say that one more time in case you missed it. I'll go slow. The gospel can provide and does provide the basis power for division in. Whether we're talking about marriages, businesses, friendships, marriages, churches, whatever we're talking about, the gospel provides the basis for unity in those relationships as well as the power to bring that unity about and divisions to an end. What if 
the next time that we were in conflict with somebody, we remembered our common Lord Jesus instead of the issue that's driving us apart? What if we remembered the fact that God has shown grace to all of us in our salvation, and by the way, has shown grace because we all needed it? And that our salvation has been shown to be real through the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in us as we wait for the Holy Spirit's coming. And what if we remembered that even as we approached conflict with each other? That God has saved that person just like He has saved me and and that we have both been saved because we both needed it. That none of us is spotless and holy and clean. Because I don't know about you, but I feel that way sometimes when I get in conflict with somebody. I get offended, get my back up, hackles raised, you know. And you do not feel sinful at that moment. You feel holy, right? You feel like the entire balanced weight of justice and truth in the universe depends on the outcome of this. I'm going to win. God rescue us from being that stupid. Because as God says, vengeance is mine and I will repay, first of all. And second of all, I'm still a sinner. So are you. And And one of the results of my sin is that it blinds me to seeing it. And so I can get in conflict with somebody, and so can you. And we are blind to our own sin, but theirs is real obvious. And we can get sideways with one another in ways that never heal. What if the next time that we remembered that because God loves us, He sent His Son for us, and He saved us both, and that because of that there is a day coming Despite our sin, when, as Paul says here, that you will be held guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that. Verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, that there's coming a day when despite all of our stuff, and we've got a list, maybe more than a list, maybe we've got a sack full of stuff. So big we can't lift it. That in spite of all of that, our faith has been shown to be real as the Holy Spirit works in us and God is going to hold us guiltless. He's going to look at us with all of our stuff and go, you know what? Paid in full at the cross. You'll be held guiltless. And if God is going to hold us guiltless, though we have rebelled against Him, don't you think it's just possible that we ought to hold one another guiltless in the here and now and to extend grace and forgiveness to each other as has been extended to us? I think so. 
The Scriptures call us to unity. And as we'll see in weeks to come, it isn't a unity based on ignoring sin. Sin always needs to be dealt with. But it is a unity based on a mutual faith in the same Christ who laid his life down for each one of us. And as a result, it's a unity that ought to include large measures of grace. Where we do extend forgiveness and grace and reach out to one another, though we are not necessarily the guilty party. Because that's my tendency is, well, I'll forgive them when they repent. Very often you'll never forgive them. But there ought to be, Paul says, unity in the body of Christ because we have the same Lord who bought us with His same blood on the same cross, who redeemed us by the same Spirit, who gave us the same spiritual gifts as members of the same body, and who calls us to be unified with one another as brothers and sisters. Amen? The gospel provides the basis and the power for that unity to occur. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would seek the unity of the body of Christ through faith in the Son who bought us all with His blood and brought us by His Spirit into the same fellowship so that Christ is not divided and that we are all baptized by the one Spirit into the same body brought in and will be brought one day into the same glory as we serve the same Lord who loved us and laid down his life for us. Father, I pray that um, as we go into conflict with one another and conflict is going to happen because we remain unredeemed. Father, I pray we remember the, remember the things that hold us in, that hold us together, the things that we have in common. And to seek peace and love unity and, and peace and grace as we love each other and love you. Father, we pray in Jesus' name.